This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk with Margot Jefferson about her new book, Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Her earlier memoir, Negroland, won the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2016. We talked about it here, about growing up in Chicago in a world of black respectability and then going to college in the black power era. Before that book, she had won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism for her work as book and arts critic for the New York Times. And she's also written for The Nation magazine. Margot Jefferson, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to return. Well, you wrote in Negro Land, that's the world in which you grew up, that one of its foundational principles was you don't tell your secrets to strangers, certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, failure. Seems like with this new book, you have left Negro Land forever. Uh, right at the beginning, you're already telling us about your workaday monster. This is a stunning passage where your monster tells you that you are a coward in work and love and that it's time to blame your dead parents, but that to do that, you must be nuanced. You must be literary. What was it like to write those parts, to tell secrets about weakness and failure to strangers, to violate your parents' principles? Well, you know, I had done some violating in Negroland. My father had died by the time I started writing Negroland, but my mother's feelings were mixed. She would supply me with stories and anecdotes. And, you know, so a part of her, the um, the waggish um, literary part was very interested in all of this. So I thought I would take these liberties, but in any case, here I am alone in the world. In that way, an orphan who's an adult. Um, it was... Mm, difficult, but also, but it was exciting um, because once you identify, name something you call a monster, you know, you've, you've entered non-realistic territory and your imagination gives your emotions license. You know? So I thought, all right. Um, and it, it's a code, you know, it's a series of metaphors. So it's, it's fine. And it, um, I, the thing that I, I suppose I've, I still dread about um, self-revelation is self-satisfaction, uh, exonerating yourself somehow <laughs> by some means or another when nobody else gets exonerated or excused. And I, I wrote that and I tried to write it, and I think I did in a way that pointed the, the ironies, the um, tiny little... Um, self-indulgent hypocrisies, um, but but necessities also, emotional necessities that pointed them out um, and made them into a story, you know, um, a dialogue, a scene. And, you know, that old trope of the of the second self, you know, which the monster is in a way, it's amazing how flexible and fluid that one still is. Well, most of the book is not about your monster. There's many exhilarating parts, like uh, you and your sister doing Ike and Tina. It's 1961. You were 13. Were you Ike or were you Tina? Well, I was both the Ikeettes initially, and then I really had to step in and be Ike. <laughs> and my sister was claiming Tina. Um, so I, you know, I, I had to work with that as best I could. Uh, all of us um, were 
thrilled by their music. And every girl, you know, was enraptured by Tina. But since she claimed her, you know, <laughs> I had to, you know, like an actor with maybe a lesser part. I, I had to do what I could and I ended up getting left with this unexpected um, interest, you know, continuing lifelong interest in the, um, the chill killer, the chilly killer mysteries of Ike Turner. On the other hand, Ella Fitzgerald, we have to talk about Ella Fitz, you and Ella Fitzgerald. Her singing was perfect, but there was something about Ella that bothered you, the way in which she was not perfect. Exactly. You know, I, of course, first heard her, as everyone in my generation did, when I was, when I was a girl. And the records were dreamy, and my parents spoke about them, and that voice is, um, is enchanting. But... As a little girl in the 50s and, you know, into the 60s, I was craving, you know, questing for glamour, for irreproachable, <laughs> flawless glamour. Um, I think all girls of all races and ethnicities were, there was a particular intensity if you were Black or another person of color because, you know, you were not sanctioned. Um, as a potentially beautiful, desirable creature by the larger culture. So, you know, the investment, for example, in Lena Horne, who was accepted, you know, as an icon of culture, was huge. Um, so Ella, Ella threw me off. Um, she was, you know, she was very, she was well-spoken. She dressed well, but she was, she was a hefty matron. And the sweat, she was one of the only, she was the only woman I ever saw on television, um, anyway working so hard and so openly that sweat dripped down her face. Working class labor, what is it I, I associated sweat with, and manliness. You know? mm. What it says now, of course, is I brook no interference with my needs as a musician. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, but it, it rattled me. I was very involved in um, manners and proprieties, at least their surfaces. And, you know, very anxious about what you violated and what the cost was. Her greatest album was Ella in Berlin, 1960, which ends with her incredible performance of How High the Moon, song from the 40s, Somewhere There's Music. This super fast scat singing of hers draws on quotes from, you, you discovered 45 other songs, including to the tune of Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. She sings Sweat Gets In My Eyes. Ella drawing on 45 other songs in six minutes of singing is a little bit like what you do in this book. Oh, don't I wish. But, but you know, let's say it became a kind of um, model, at least for me. That's right. The, the reaching out, the um, almost excessiveness, and then, you know, the bringing it in um, to shape it and structure it. Yeah. Well, that's very nice. I love that. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, you know, it, I guess it was a model. Isn't that funny that I haven't thought of it in that way when that chapter is so obsessed you know, with Ella? But yeah. Then we get to Bing Crosby, one of the whitest and one of the least sweaty people on earth. Mr. White Christmas, you call him. The most shocking sentence in your book is, I'm Bing Crosby. Why? You know, there again, it's a little bit like Ike Turner. There's a, 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 always a mystery to these um, non-licensed obsessions. Um, 
But I must also add one of the things that intrigued me. First of all, there's a kind of triumphant traditional mainstream, nothing is disturbing the rules and regulations and myths of American culture, utter power, white male power, uninhibited, uninterrupted, not having to labor, you know, to assert itself, being very cool. And that that spectacle was fascinating. The other thing, though, that intrigued me, um, which Gary Giddens, of course, um, explores so well in his Bing Crosby work, he had begun as um, a pop jazz singer who worshiped Louis Armstrong and Big Spiderbeck and Ethel Waters. And you can hear, you know, again, it's that sense of the double and triple personalities. You hear that in the early work, you know, uh, with the Paul Whiteman band, with the quote, rhythm boys. Then you watch these transformations you know, into dear hearts and gentle people, into the Bob Hope movies, into a frightening kind of Mr. America, but that he could get away with all of it is what fascinated me. And that's what made me feel that it was in my version of um, claiming the license that a minstrel has. You put on that mask um, because they have something you want, but you drop it when it's over. You know, it's, it's, it's presuming. It's presuming. So I wanted to reverse that power dynamic. One of my favorite moments in the book comes when you're in eighth grade, 1960, when you see West Side Story, the stage play, with Cheetah Rivera singing, I want to live in America. You write, Latins are a deluxe signifier for Negroes on stage and screen, an alluring, enviable addition of non-white people with histories not wholly bound to the history of slavery in the United States. What a great sentence. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, you know, and also with a range of looks that allowed them, you know, the lighter skin sometimes, the straighter hair, you know, the, well, I'm Mexican. Nah, <laughs> not that, now, that's been turned into, by certain right-wing <laughs> quarters, an insult. But in, but in the old days, ah, you know, that was, that was somewhere. It still had a place in the culture. The same was true if you think of, and I, which I think I did write about in Negroland, Flower Drum Song. For example, the same and the king and I, Asians could um, occupy that same role from the point of view of blacks in those those movies. You know, a limited, controlled, and contained glamour, but glamour. Can we talk about black feminist anger modes? What you call your muses, your coaches, and your exemplars, which I guess starts with Nina Simone. You say, my friends and I were besotted with Nina Simone. You call her works in the 70s an oracle of our collective grief and fury. Wow. She was. And actually, interestingly enough, for male listeners too, you know, she she really claimed that grief and fury. Having begun um, always with that extraordinary voice and power, but having begun much more in the kind of uh, jazz American popular song mode, uh, those first, you know, that first album, um, you know, her versions of I Loves You, Porgy, or um, Mood Indigo, uh, but always um, that intensity that, that implied, I'm controlling this song. You know, I'm, the song is not controlling me or offering me a vehicle to be um, enchanting. I'm controlling it. I'm interpreting it. I'm, I'm crafting it with my persona. 
And then, you know, she did move into this um, really almost epic um, political God and goddess-like um, presence. We, we didn't know at the time that she was, now we do. At the same time, you know, suffering hugely, um, emotionally, um, bipolar, etc., which makes her to me all the more um, impressive, actually. Yeah. You know, tra- with an edge of tragedy um, because of all that pressure placed on her to be as a radical, even as a black radical exemplary. Um, as had been pressed on her <laughs> when she was more a jazz performer, but astonishing, you know, uh, one of a kind. But you decide that you prefer for yourself what you call the counter diva mode, where anger uses comic brevity. Tell us about that. Well, you know, we work with um, our limitations as well as our <laughs> advantages. <laughs> So um, I recognize, particularly from my very early days dabbling in acting, you know, that I I do better with certain modes of aggressive reserve <laughs> um, and play, underplaying something rather than overplaying it. So, you know, I one studies that. Um, and the, that whole chapter of female anger, which actually starts with adolescence, you know, modes. Um, you know, it really is all about how you make your way through um, all of these feminine styles, some blatantly angry, very few, um, in, the, in the early days, um, some very, with angry subterfuge, you know, um, and you, you adapt what you can for your own circumstances. You know, my, oh, and also for your own aesthetics, you know, with my sister as, as a, it was Martha Graham, you know, she was a modern dancer, but, you know, when, when she saw Martha Graham pull um, a red cloth out of what were her innards <laughs> to simulate Medea, you know, she, what, you know, where else could you achieve that kind of power? You know, you internalize those, those things. And every movie of Betty Davis is for the same reason. Even when Betty lost, <laughs> her style won out and her will, her will won out. At the very end of your book, you describe a meeting you attended of a group called Black Women for Wages for Housework. This is in the 70s. You quote a speaker who says, I'm tired. I'm tired for what my grandmama did. And you wrote in your diary that you were disdainful about what you called wearing the garb of ancestral suffering. This was 40-some years ago. What do you think about that today? I see what I was saying. I didn't want to, and it was something a lot of um, feminists and Black feminists in particular were examining. You know, how do we do justice to history without claiming that suffering and moving ahead with it, almost as if it were a theatrical, you know, garment to wear? I think I was harsh on that young woman, but I see um, what I was grappling with in myself. Uh, because I then go on to talk about my grandmother and and the the power and the um, pressure um, exerted by that power of the figure of the black grandmother, you know, <laughs> who can do everything and and who represents um, all that is noble, but also was oppressive in that in your history. So you are constantly feeling you must live that, up to that. It's just a really moving part of your book. 
I, you know, partly because I, I adored my grandmother, you know, so that combination of, of rapture and intimidation with um, an authority figure is, is an authority figure who has personal authority, but also has historical authority. That is formidable um, as a formative influence. So you have a wonderful list, which is actually a description of what, how your parents' world regarded black popular culture. But I think it also applies to, to you in, in this book. You have used, honored, disdained, studied, learned from, borrowed from, stolen from, been inspired by gone slumming in this huge list of books and movies of music. It's the first book I know of to bring Willa Cather next to Ike Turner. And you overcame the voice that said, you can't do that. So all I can say to that is, wow, and thank you. Oh. <laughs> Let me just add that. Willa and Ike are not in the same chapter. <laughs> they inhabit this larger landscape of the same book. Um, and yes, that passage you read, I believe that, you know, I was writing, I think, in that passage, as you say, about our relations to Black culture, but it's also what I'm doing with white culture, isn't it? Margot Jefferson's new book is Constructing a Nervous System, a Memoir. Margot, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.